You don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. In today's episode, we talk to a climate scientist about the heat wave. It turns out being hungry is a real thing, and a conversation about dog belly buttons. But first, it was in this day in 1959, paleoanthropologist Mary Leakey discovered the partial skull of a new species of early human ancestor, Zinjanthropus boisei, or Zinj, walked the earth almost two million years ago. Decollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. This week, NASA released the first full-color images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Peering deep into the recesses of the universe, these dazzling images of stars and galaxies show the deepest, most detailed view of the universe to date. We're looking back more than 13 billion years. The new images reveal the breathtaking view of a stellar nursery, a roaring sphere of gas around a dying star, and a cosmic dance between a group of galaxies. The James Webb Space Telescope, the successor to the famous Hubble Space Telescope, was launched in late 2021 with the aim of taking pictures of the very first stars in the universe and finding habitable planets beyond our solar system. On Tuesday, in a public briefing with the President and Vice President, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson presented the telescope's first image. President, if you held a grain of sand on the tip of your finger at arm's length that is the part of the universe that you're seeing just one little speck of the universe you're seeing galaxies that are shining around other galaxies whose light has been bent and you're seeing just a small little portion of the universe 100 years ago, we thought there was only one galaxy. Now the number is unlimited. And in our galaxy, we have billions of stars or suns, and there are billions of galaxies with billions of stars and suns. We're looking back more than 13 billion years. And they plan to go back further. They're going back about 13 and a half billion years And since we know the universe is 13.8 billion years old, we're going back almost to the beginning. And it's not just galaxies and stars, as the James Webb is designed to take images in the infrared, allowing it to view objects a human eye can't see. NASA researchers hope to also discover distant habitable planets. And when you look at something as big as this is, we are going to be able to answer questions that we don't even know what the questions are yet. The image showcased on Tuesday is just the first of many to be released in the telescope, but it was powerful enough to bring some NASA scientists to tears. In an interview with Reuters, NASA Associate Administrator Dr. Thomas Sarbukin shared his feelings. With an untrained eye, this is a red speck. Uh, but with a trained eye, this is why we built this telescope, and it's working and it's there. And it's not only there, it's already delivering results. To me, that is just an incredible achievement and, uh, you know, a one that will surely make history. Many of us have seen a glorious Sunday afternoon with lots of sunshine and some high temperatures. In the week ahead, the talk is definitely one of temperatures. 
a hot start for many of us. Somewhat cool as well. Right now, the UK and continental Europe are sweltering in a heat wave. It's so hot that the Met Office has issued an amber weather warning for extreme heat across a large part of the UK. The national forecaster now believes there's one in five chance that Britain could record its hottest ever temperature. Some models even indicate it could hit a scorching 40 degrees Celsius. So, why is it so hot right now? To find out, we spoke to Mariam Zachariah from Imperial College London's Grantham Institute for Climate Change. Heat waves are generally driven by high pressure systems. Now, in this part of the world, uh, there is this one particular system called the Azores High, which normally sits off the coast of Spain. But somehow this year, it has been acting, sitting expansively over Western Europe as well as the UK. And this has sort of been driving the hot conditions that we have been seeing in this part of the world right now. What are the dangers of this type of heat in the UK? So this part of the world is not used to high temperatures. Temperatures about 25 degrees Celsius is treated to be a heat wave threshold. Now, um, what happens is when temperatures cross 32 degrees Celsius, if we have not, if we are not taking proper precautions, it can prove to be fatal. And by fatal, I mean that, uh, you know, it would mostly be some, some section of the community would be more impacted than the others. For example, the young children who are going to school or the elderly uh, would be more impacted by the high temperatures. What connection is there between human activity and these heat waves? A major consequence of human activity is global warming, as we all know. Now, as there is an overall warming, we see that, you know, the, the different global regions also warm. Now, that means that, you know, the high temperatures that were unusual in the past is now becoming more frequent in the in recent years. And as a result, you see these high temperatures happening more uh, frequently. And that is what causes heat waves. So we can say that uh, human activity, due to increased human activity, heat waves are going to become more common and more frequent. And, uh, you know, unless we do something... Um, about it, it'll continue to get worse. Are we at all prepared for it? So adaptation is something that every country in the world will have to do, especially in the face of future extreme events or heat waves in this context. Most of our infrastructure, if we look at it, it is not equipped for withstanding temperatures above, let's say, 20 degrees Celsius, 20 plus or minus 5 degrees Celsius. Now, that means that this infrastructure needs retrofitting. You know, basically, we have to find ways to keep our houses cooler during the summer and warmer during the winter. And uh, I remember recently reading somewhere that, you know, in this time, the hospitals are struggling with storing medicines correctly, especially when the temperatures are playing, you know, quite high as we are seeing this time. So these are some of the things. And um, in, in that context, yes, there is a lot more things that we have to do to be better prepared in the face of future events. As temperatures are set to reach the high 30s in some parts of the UK, how should we be adapting to live comfortably with these heat waves. It is important that we stay hydrated, try and stay indoors whenever possible. We know that we are having good weather in terms of, you know, because it's generally very cold in this part of the world. But, you know, it is very important that we stay hydrated and make sure that the windows are closed and, you know, we keep the curtains closed during the heat to, you know, sort of keep the house, the indoors cooler. Still to come on the Sunday 7, why some people just can't catch COVID and a scientific explanation of hungry.
Masks and social distancing may already be a thing of the past, but don't think COVID's over just yet. Infections have steadily been on the rise in the past week and COVID deaths passed the grim 200,000 milestone in the UK. Whilst you may hear murmurings of friends of friends catching COVID this summer, there are still those who have somehow eluded the virus. Why is it that some people have never tested positive despite being exposed? Scientists in Canada and around the world are trying to solve this exact mystery. In a McGill University research lab, scientists are trying to figure out whether genetic factors play a role in making some people immune or resistant to the coronavirus, and they already have some clues. Dr. Don Vin is an infectious disease specialist and medical microbiologist at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Speaking to CBC News in June, he explained how they're using frozen vials of cells to uncover the potentially genetic cause for the COVID infections mystery. So what happens is that each one of these vials is cells from a patient. We have patients who have severe disease, patients who have mild disease, but in this case, we also have patients who are resistant. And these cells are cryopreserved so that they're still alive when we thaw them out. Inside these frozen vials are cells which house genes which help shape a person's traits. This is our gold mine. Every person we see, we need to get these cells and we need to freeze them down. Genes passed from one generation to the next give cells specific instructions like a biological recipe book for making proteins. Proteins are the building block for everything in your body from bones and blood to muscles and fighting infections. We don't think that this is going to be one gene that's found across the world. We think that there will be, in different populations, different genes that account for resistance. Samples from seemingly virus-resistant individuals have helped researchers in the past to come up with treatments to fight other infections, including malaria and HIV. Like the coronavirus, HIV must latch onto receptors from our cells in order to get inside and cause an infection. But some people have gene mutations that don't allow this to happen. What happens in HIV is that receptor in the people who are resistant is mutant. It's not expressed properly. And that means that the virus can't attach. So that means that you can, you can then give a medication like that molecule that's, that's missing and prevent the, the HIV virus from attaching into onto cells. It's early days still, but scientists hope they're getting closer to finding a similar mechanism for COVID-19. So there are some potential clues in that, you know, when we talk about the virus attaching to the cells and we talk about some receptors, it looks like maybe some of those uh, internal proteins may be uh, part of the solution. Again, it's, it's a little too early to know. These are the needles in the haystack that tell us something. There's a, there's a biological lesson to be learned on that person, but we've got we to find out what that lesson is. And the determined McGill researchers are hoping to get results from their study as early as this autumn. one of you losers nick my deodorant who'd want to smell like you no who would have smelled like you brilliant witty zip it shrimpy done eat a snickers why because you turn into a right diva when you're hungry you're not you when you're hungry Snickers. Snickers has built a whole brand on it, but now scientists have proved that hangry is a real thing. Professor Viren Swarmy is the Anglia Ruskin social psychologist who set out to study it, and we caught up with him for more details. So, Professor Swarmy, your latest study looks at the link between hunger and emotions. How did this study come about? <laughs> so, 
people are always saying to me, Varen, you're always hangry all the time. And as a psychologist, you know, I, I'm kind of interested in this idea that people can be hangry. I wanted to know whether it was real or not. And that was really the kind of genesis of the study. Could you walk me through how the study was carried out? Over a period of 21 days, participants were sent a message on a smartphone app at five random time points asking them to complete a survey. And that survey asked them to report how hungry they were, how angry they were, how irritable they were, and also how much pleasure they were feeling at that particular time point. And what did it ultimately reveal? What we were able to show was that at any given time point, the greater the level of hunger, the more likely it is participants would report that they were also angry, irritable, and also had lower levels of pleasure. So being hungry is scientifically a real phenomenon. Do you have any ideas as to why hunger can take over our emotions like this? When we're feeling hungry, we interpret information in the environment around us in a much more emotionally negative way give you a very simple example. Let's say I'm feeling very hungry right now uh, and you're asking me all these questions. If I'm feeling hungry, I'm, I'm more likely to interpret you asking me questions in a negative way and that's more likely to make me irritable and angry. If I was feeling full, I'm less likely to interpret that same information in a negative way. Hunger can affect all kinds of things in, in not just our emotions, but also our understanding of the world around us. For example, in many non-human species, what we find is that hunger can cause aggression, mainly because those animals are trying to seek food. And so they're more likely to become aggressive towards other members of their own species. So the idea that hunger can affect our emotions is quite long-standing. But applied here, it basically suggests that our view of the world becomes more coloured by the fact that we are experiencing hunger. So hunger becomes the source of negativity. Now that we know more definitely that the link exists, what are the implications? I think it's really important, firstly, to be aware that being hungry is a real thing. In very simple terms, when you're hungry, you're more likely to be irritable and angry. So being aware of that is really useful. I think the other really important implication, though, is the idea of affect labeling basically means putting a label on your emotions. When you're feeling something, labeling that emotion can help you understand what you're experiencing. If, for example, you're feeling hungry and you're starting to feel irritable, you might not be aware that your irritability is being caused by your hunger. So being able to label it and say, I'm feeling angry right now and it's because I'm hungry is a first step to then being able to kind of resolve that emotion, which is to go and find some food. So having an awareness of that is really important. Your study looked at adults, but what does this mean for the learning and development of hungry kids at school? If a child goes to school hungry, it will likely affect how they interact with other children at school. It may also affect how they interact with with caregivers, with their teachers, but it also may affect their ability to learn effectively. But it's not just children, adults too. I mean, with, with an, if an adult is, is consistently hungry, we might expect that they might have more difficult relationships with others because they're frequently angry, or they might have difficult relationships with peers because they're frequently feeling, feeling irritable. It may also affect things like their productivity, their ability to learn, their ability to be creative, all kinds of different things. How should we use this information to approach how we live our lives and operate during the day? Well, I, I I'd have two two suggestions. One is one of the things I already mentioned, which is to be able to label the emotions that people are experiencing. The other thing I would suggest is to learn to eat intuitively. Intuitive eating is basically this idea that we eat when response to hunger rather than to emotional cues. And that's really a, a very good tool to be able to have, particularly in terms of things like weight management, but also improve psychological well-being. Still to come on the Sunday 7, a brand new tiny arm dinosaur and dog belly buttons. Right after this. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or maybe try our UK edition. It's all in the usual places. It roamed the Earth 100 million years ago. Now it's back from the depths. Its remains are revealed for the first time. An international team in Argentina has discovered a new dinosaur species. And according to the findings, it had similar qualities to the well-known Tyrannosaurus rex, including its tiny arms. Not only did the researchers discover one of the most complete skulls of a large meat-eating dinosaur ever, but it was also a species that had never been found before. This is a highlight of my career in, in many ways. Peter Makovicki is one of the leaders of what was an international team. They named their Moraxis Gigas after the fictional dragon from the Game of Thrones series. Apparently, one of the team is a big fan. We bandied about several other possible names. Um, this one had sort of the, the best ring to it, I would say. Um, kind of rolls off the tongue. Moraxis was about the size of a bus. It was more than 10 metres long and weighed more than 4,000 kg. But one thing that makes the discovery particularly important is what it says about evolution. It developed completely separately from other big-headed and small-armed dinosaurs. The T-Rex, for example, didn't come around for another 20 million years, but they both somehow evolved in the same way. Their arms got smaller and their heads grew bigger and more important for hunting. They're the main tool, if you will, for procuring and manipulating food items of presumably very large size. The discovery also led researchers to speculate other ways their tiny arms could have been used. Juan Canale, the lead author of the study, has said that although the arms were too short for hunting, he thinks they were used in other kinds of activities, like holding the female during mating. The team is still studying the fossils they recovered at the site and are sure to go back. There's much more to be excavated and there may still be secrets to be uncovered. A personalised cancer vaccine made from individual patients' own DNA is producing impressive early results. The groundbreaking jab, created using technology perfected in the COVID pandemic, has been given to patients after they complete conventional treatment for head and neck cancers. To make the vaccine, cancer cells are first removed from an individual patient. DNA mutations unique to the tumour are first identified and then cut and pasted into a harmless virus. When the virus is injected into the body, it trains the immune system to target cancer cells, hopefully destroying them before before they even form a lump. Here's Professor Christian Otzenmeyer, Clinical Research Director, speaking to Sky News. If we can train the immune system to pick those cancer cells that would otherwise lead to a relapse at a time when we can't even see them, then the chances of long-term survival for our patients is much higher. I'm quite excited about this, but I think the, the, all the data pointing in the right direction. 
Early results show that all eight patients that received the vaccine have remained well after several months, but two of another eight who weren't given the jab have relapsed. The vaccine is experimental, but the technology it relies on proved itself during the pandemic. AstraZeneca's COVID jab was made in a very similar way, and Moderna's mRNA technique is being used elsewhere with very hopeful results against pancreatic cancer. Scientists in Oxford developed the AstraZeneca jab and are now working on a vaccine to treat prostate cancer, applying what they learned in COVID. Here's researcher Professor Adrian Hill, director of the Oxford team at the Jenner Institute. The pandemic has helped and accelerated the development of a whole range of new vaccines. We learned about their safety in billions of people, whereas previously it had been in thousands. That's very helpful safety data to have. And it means that there will be a lot more investment now in fields like cancer, where we desperately need better therapies. recently came across an article in the office which made us all ask questions to ourselves. Do dogs have belly buttons? It turns out all but one of us had ever seen one. Those aren't terribly reliable odds, so we reached out to an expert who could set the record straight. I'm Rachel Bean. I'm a qualified veterinary nurse with the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. So Rachel, can you set the record straight for us? Do dogs have belly buttons? Dogs do have belly buttons. When they're born, they have umbilical connection in the uterine horns. So yes, they have belly buttons. It's right in the middle of their tummies, right in the midline uh, between the nipples. Um, and it's very smooth. It's not uh, sticky out or, or inny like ours. And you'll just see a little circle, just a very smooth, light-coloured circle with a little raised bit in the middle. And that's their belly button. Sometimes we get a little fluff gathering in ours that we've got to dig out with a Q-tip. Do we need to be looking out for our pooches in the same way? Not with dogs, no, because it's very smooth. It doesn't have like that little fluff pocket that <laughs> gathers all the dirt and the, the fluff. Um, they can have problems with them, though. The, the main one is called an umbilical hernia. So sometimes when they're born, the mum can be either a little bit too rough with them when she's biting the umbilical cord off, and that could cause an area that lifts away from the stomach wall and causes an umbilical hernia. Or they can be born with an umbilical hernia, which basically means the stomach wall, the stomach muscles that are to join together through development as a fetus have not completed. So you're left with a hole um, just underneath the belly button and fat pokes through. And in worst cases, um, internal organs can poke through. So it has to be repaired if it's a severe one. Those hernias are easily recognised as a bump or swelling on the lower underbelly of your dog. If you suspect your dog has one, it's always worth contacting your vet. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.